Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Um, we, uh, we we really want to talk today about the sort of big study on the minimum wage that came out of the University of Washington uh, last week. There's been a, a lot of people uh, asking us to talk about it. Uh, I'm really jazzed up about, about this subject. Uh, but, you know, white paper segment comes at the end uh so we want to move- we're going to save a lot of time for it so we, yes. we got a lot of say on this so we we, we want to make sure that we move briskly through a couple uh newsier topics uh ted cruz has, has a big idea uh could revolutionize the healthcare debate maybe um and obviously the elephant in the room of of american politics right now is the revelation that uh donald trump jr uh got an email saying hey do you want to come to a meeting where the russian government will give you defamatory information about hillary clinton and he said wait as part of the russian government's effort to support your father's presidential campaign yes and he said if it's what you say it is i love it so a couple thoughts on this um one you just you do not see documents like this in 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 politics just generally uh this is like when the james bond villain comes out from behind the curtain he says just to be clear i'm going to create a super volcano it's going to destroy everyone in the world unless you give me all the gold there's a, a level of literalism in this email that is just very bizarre even so i, I want to offer an interpretation that that i have been persuaded by for a long time in the the trump russia stuff that maybe fits both what you see in the email and what don trump jr did and also um their sort of reaction to it if if you watch trump jr on hannity last night he really seems like a man aggrieved i mean he seems confused and upset and anxious and and obviously one would be but he does not seem in command of what happened here. I, I think he is surprised. I think he did not expect this. He keeps saying this was a nothing meeting. Jared left early. Paul Manafort was looking at his phone. Like we did not like this was a bad meeting. The guy apologized to me for it. It got like they didn't have the goods at all. And I think something that is true here or is going to prove to be true here is I think there was collusion between the Trump campaign and, and Russia. I'm not sure if this meeting led to actual collusion. We do not have evidence of that. But subsequent to this meeting, Russia does begin releasing all these DNC emails. It, it just seems unlikely to me that there was an effort to have collusion between Russia and Trump. There was a massive pro-Trump operation on Russia's behalf, but somehow the two sides never met up. But at the same time, I think that now when we look at it and put it in that frame, it seems clearly sinister, which it is. But when they were doing it and they're amateurs and they don't totally understand a lot of pieces of of American politics and what's okay to do and what's not okay to do and they're coordinating constantly with a lot of interest groups and a lot of shady characters and trying to get oppo research, that to them this didn't seem like a big deal. It wasn't like this big thing, collusion, which maybe is a criminal act. It was much more like what they were doing, coordinating with independent expenditure committees and coordinating with um, just like people who came to them who seemed like they had some good dirt on the Clintons. And so now they're in this position where they know, they realize now that what they did is absolutely beyond the pale. Like it is like existentially threatening to the White House. And so now they're trying to protect themselves. They're lying. They see stories of what they did where the facts are all correct, but it doesn't feel like what they were trying to do plastered on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they're panicking. And so this is just big, big gap between 
what they thought they were doing maybe or what they understood themselves to be doing and what it really looks like when you put it in context and put it in the cold light of day. And I'll just to end this rant, there's something John Brennan said, the former CIA director, a couple months ago. He was testifying before the House Intelligence Committee on Russia in 2016 and on the possible connections between Trump and others in, in Russia in 2016. And he did not go so far as to say anything definitive about collusion. But he did have this very weird line that a lot of people took notice of where he said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, often when you go down a treasonous path, you don't realize that's what you're doing until too late. And putting aside the idea of treason, I think that is true here. I think it is very possible they went down a path of colluding with Russia. They did not really understand what it was they were doing and what it would mean until it was too late. And now we are in too late. So the Crazy thing to me is that these emails even exist in the first place. And it's hard for me to know, like, whether it represents an unfamiliarity with government or like a lack of caring. But I think like both you guys experience this when like someone wants to tell you something that they don't want there to be a record of, they give you a call on your telephone. Like, and this happens even when, you know, I'm working with sources on the Hill who say, Hey, you know, I, I want to tell you about something. Can I give you a call? Um, you know, we're not like colluding on like any sort of Russia tampering into anything. Well, so but you say. So I There's say. No email but, records. But you wouldn't know, right? Because I decided <laughs> to have a phone call about this discussion instead of an email. And, and it seems quite hard to separate like, were they just not? And these are people who deal with a lot of business things. Like, I, I assume outside of journalism, like when you want to have something that is not going to have a paper trail that couldn't be subpoenaed, like the thing one would do is say, no, I would never accept that over email and then give Rob Gladstone a call and like ask him what's up with this email. And it is still, you know, somewhat baffling to me that that email chain just exists in the first place. And I don't know whether it represents like a sense of, you know, protection that Donald Trump Jr., someone who's, you know, grown up in his father's shadow, who's relied on him, who has, you know, not, you know, had to fend for himself in a lot of ways, if it just reflected that kind of upbringing or a lack of caring or, you know, maybe a belief that this wasn't something wrong, there was nothing to hide. But it's just so weird that, like, this smoking gun document exists in the first place. You know, something I think that frames well is that I feel like in the press, the Trump-Russia story has been framed as an investigation into this somewhat hazy notion of collusion. Um, but if you if you read the the Steele dossier that people uh, only know of uh, be, because of the the infamous P tape allegation, um, what he is saying overall is that the Russians have been gathering blackmail material on Trump. And that because they can blackmail Trump, they also want Trump to be president of the United States. And this idea of collusion is not at all at the center of that document. I mean, it does suggest that the Russian government passed information to the Trump campaign. But his allegation, his reporting is much more focused on the idea that the Russians are trying to gain leverage on Trump. And he posits them doing this across a number of different dimensions. 
that they give Trump money, that they give Trump information, that they attempt to make secret video recordings of Trump uh, having weird sexual escapades, uh, and that they catch Trump in violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that they catch Trump in violations of American money laundering uh, rules. Obviously, we don't know if any of that stuff is true, but the weirdness of the Goldstone email and this meeting with the lawyer seems to me to be very consistent with that, right? Like Donald Trump Jr.'s version of this story is an acquaintance out of the blue is like, hey, man, would you like to do some illegal collaboration with the Russian government? And then Don Trump Jr. in the heat of the campaign, not thinking too hard about this, is like, sure, set it up. And then they send this lawyer over and then she's got nothing. Right. Like that's that's his story. Right. And then according to his own story, he at this point really badly fucks up. Right. If this happens. Right. You have to go right away to the FBI. You have to say this weird thing happened to me and a person putting themselves forward as a representative of Russian intelligence asked to have a meeting with me. I, not thinking really clearly about the issues at stake, agreed to the meeting. The meeting turned out to be super weird and she was pressing me on stuff related to sanctions, adoptions that I, I mean, I know I'm like in my dad's campaign, but I'm not an expert on this stuff. I don't really know what's going on. I want you to know that this happened and that like I am not a Russian spy, right? But he didn't do that. Right. He was like, that would have been embarrassing. I mean, this is his story. Yes. Right. So in, in Don Trump Jr.'s version of this, this weird thing goes down. He doesn't know what to make of it. And he decides to just kind of like put it in a box and forget about it. And he even says like the whole Russia fever didn't exist at that time, which like to an extent is fair enough. But then the Russia fever really gets to a high boil later that summer. You have these hacks. You have Trump suddenly changes the story, stops saying he knows Vladimir Putin. You have Hillary Clinton's campaign. is like Donald Trump is a Russian agent, right? And Don Jr. knows this weird meeting happened, and he's not telling anybody about it. So now they've got him. Also, Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort also know this weird yes, meeting yes, happened. Yes. I just want to note that sure, because yes. one thing about this that is interesting is Kushner and Jr., really don't know anything about American politics. Paul Manafort knows a fair amount about American politics and a lot about Soviet, post-Soviet bloc politics. And then they fire Manafort because his financial ties to Russia have become a liability, right? So they've created this situation where even if you want to posit they didn't do anything else wrong, they've just like handed – this like incredible blackmail material to the Russian government on the president's son and then spent months trying to cover it up. And like if you separate it out, a lot of Trump stuff is, is, is like this, like the boiling frog thing where you're like, aha, we don't have like documents of like a manila folder being passed from Vladimir Putin. But if you imagine Barack Obama's administration. No scandalous stories, no scandalous stories, no scandalous stories. Then one day it comes out. All that comes out is that Valerie Jarrett had this weird meeting. Uh, it was embarrassing. Because it was embarrassing, she chose not to tell anyone about it. And so now she's been subject to blackmail by the Russian government for the past nine months. That would be it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, game over. There wouldn't need to be any larger allegations. You can't have a senior aide to the president 
doing something like this, right? And, and like in the the Trump bar has been set in this like crazy place where it's like you know, people are talking about like should Jared Kushner lose his security clearance because he's a criminal and like he should, <laughs> but like he should also why does he have a security clearance in the first place? Like it, the whole thing is absurd. So uh, I think that that is a very I think that is the correct larger context for this. They and this goes to the point of. Why it was actually dangerous that they didn't understand really anything about foreign policy. They didn't have any kind of traditional foreign policy team. I think one thing that might have happened here is just a total confusion about, well, why can't we talk with the Russians? They seem to think that similar things happened in the Clinton campaign, though they didn't. Um, there's a whole set of weird justifications for this uh, on the Trump side. But the reason – there are a lot of reasons you don't do this. I mean some of them are norms. But one of them, particularly with a government like Russia, is that when you do things that then you have to lie about that Russia knows, they have leverage over you. And one thing I think is really difficult right now um, is that our policy towards Russia and related to things that Russia is interested in covers a lot of our foreign policy, our relationship with NATO our activities in Syria, on and on and on down the line. It is simply very hard for us to know what Russia knows about Donald Trump and his children and what kind of leverage that gives them. And it is not fun to talk like this. And it is um, obviously a little bit conspiratorial, but it is also obviously well within the realm of plausibility. I mean, we are seeing it right now. This came out. We don't quite know how it came out. And it's a huge problem for Donald Trump. I mean, he could wind up with one of his sons in jail or he could have to pardon the son and, you know, lose, you know, open up an impeachment proceeding. I mean, all kinds of terrible things could happen. The Russians might know much more. There might really have been collusion around the hackings, for instance. That means there's collusion around a real crime, right? They're, they're not, that's just not – that is not just oppo research. That is Russians stole documents from a political party, use them in the campaign – and the Trump administration was helping them or, or campaign was helping them or advising them. Now, that may not come out, but maybe it's there. And so one of the just very difficult things about this is it calls our foreign policy into question. It is not something that we can be confident in right now, that it is being made on the merits. And if we can't be confident in it, is Angela Merkel confident in it? Are our allies confident in it? Do they believe that we that what we are doing, that when Donald Trump deletes the line affirming NATO's Chapter 5 uh, mutual protection guarantees from his speech on NATO, that that's because Donald Trump has super specific views on NATO? Or is that because Donald Trump owes Putin some favors and he knows he's got to pay up and the one thing Putin really wants is a weakening of NATO? That's This is just a bad position to be in as a country. Um, it's a bad position for how we act on the world stage. It's a bad position for our prestige on the world stage, for how much of the people we need to coordinate with feel like they uh, can trust us. If there is something going on with Russia, it's a bad position because our policy might be uh, unusually and unwisely tilted towards their interests. Like This is just bad. Um, and, and it's not just an embarrassing thing for the Trump administration. I saw Senator Orrin Hatch say, I don't see how any of this has relevance for the Trump administration. It is relevance to the Trump administration because it is about our foreign policy and it calls into question what is going on with the people who are making it. Speaking of people. people making policy. <laughs> yeah. All right. We, were, we got to 15 minutes on this. We wanted to hold ourselves. And now, now it's time to talk go. about other policy. Some other policy. Some other policy. Is there other policy? 
You know, these days, uh, almost everything you, you could want in life is on demand. You know, our podcast, uh, you, you download it when it comes out, but then you listen to it whenever you want, uh, wherever you want. Going to the post office, though, you know, it's not like that. So why are you still stuck dealing with, with limited hours and, and, and limited locations when you could get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Uh, anything you could do on the post office, you can now do from your desk or even a, a comfy chair with Stamps.com. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it. You know, federal holidays, uh, after hours, early in the morning, on the weekend, 24-7. Stamps.com, it's on the internet. It never turns off. Uh, it's just like it's a really convenient way to to get the postage that you need. Uh, you know, a lot of times uh, y- you think of, of getting around to these kind of mailing errands not during the, the most obvious regular business hours. And, and it's it's really the way to go. Uh, so right now, if you use the name Weeds for this special offer, you get a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale. You go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Weeds. That's Stamps.com, then enter Weeds. Uh, Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Super convenient, super easy. It'll make your life better. I had to I had to argue Sarah into talking about this for longer today. Sarah's done. She's going to she's it's, she's moving to minimum wage full time. It is true Ezra had to talk us into having this this segment and it might reflect some of my um long time covering health policy at this point. <laughs> okay, but, so Sarah, so, let me yeah. ask you a basic question about what this. What you got? What the heck is Ted Cruz's amendment? Ted Cruz's amendment, I kind of think of it as like the split the baby in half amendment that like it's supposed to be a compromise but leads to terrible outcomes. That's really good, actually. <laughs> um, and maybe I'll use that in box care today. Um, but so Ted Cruz has this idea and it's going what's going to happen today's Wednesday. Tomorrow is Thursday. And on Thursday, we're expecting the Senate to release two new versions of their health care bill. And one will have this Cruz amendment. The Cruz amendment is actually pretty simple in its conception. The idea is. All health insurance plans in the individual market have to sell one version that complies with the Affordable Care Act. It has to cover the essential health care benefits. It has to have no lifetime limits. But you could also have a version that doesn't comply with those requirements, a version that covers fewer benefits, that might have lifetime limits, that would have skimpier benefits. So can I ask you a question on this? Yeah. So just to tell me conceptualize it, like let's say I'm in California. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if Aetna's on the California exchange. It's probably not. They're out, right? Yeah. A unit, I don't know. Blue, Cro- Blue, Blue Shield Cross, of Blue California. Shield, right. So they have six plans on the exchanges, and one plan has to be Obamacare compliant, but the other plans, it's total California. Yeah, so they have like a plan that's like no maternity care, and they have a plan that's no mental health care, and they have a plan that like maybe doesn't do prescription drugs or something. These are all things that, to varying levels, were excluded from the individual market before you had these benefit mandates. So, you know, the conception, as Cruz talks about it, is that he calls it the consumer choice amendment, that people could choose between different plans, they could buy the type of coverage they want. If you talk to any health policy expert, they know exactly how this ends. You end up with all the expensive sick people in the Obamacare compliant plan, and you have the healthy young people kind of segmenting into these lower benefit plans. And you really do raise the risk of a death spiral where this, um, you know, Obamacare compliant plan it becomes a dumping round for, you know, Health insurance people would say bad risk. More normal people would say sicker patients with high medical needs. And you end up with a lot of gaming. So, like, let's say in this blue shield situation, it's really easy to game the system if you are, for example, trying to have a baby where one year you buy the plan that has maternity coverage because you are having a child. And then the next year you just kind of switch back to the other plan. You know, I've been talking to a lot of 
experts on health policy about for this and for some other provisions in the Senate. And one of the things they make really clear is that when you have two insurance markets that people could pick between that have different rules, it just always ends up as a mess. It never we have we have examples of this happening actually in Washington state, the site of our next um, minimum wage paper in Kentucky, where, where they did this, where they said, we want to give people the choice. Do you want skimpy insurance or robust insurance? And they had to repeal these programs because we've just seen they don't they don't work. So are the subsidies available for both kinds of plans? Yes. So, so right. So one thing you could, you could set this up as is say, okay, you only get the subsidies in the robust plan is kind of a nudge towards those plans. But that's not really what Cruz is going for here. He wants people to have the choice of any of these plans. So the idea is to make the subsidies available to any of this kind of coverage. And is the regulation on the skimpy plans, is the idea still that states would set some kind of regulatory floor like in these waiver concepts or is it just like they could say like here's a thing and it has a two million dollar deductible but also you get free pizza come take your subsidy check here (laughs) yeah so i think um that's a good question i don't fully know the answer to the cruise amendment actually like has not been written out as an amendment we'll see it on thursday but (laughs) so we just like literally have quotes of ted cruz he has like this um little pamphlet he's been handing out that people have taken pictures of he's told dylan scott about this idea um so once again republicans have a healthcare idea so good (laughs) that it's secret it's a secret healthcare idea that will become public on Thursday. But you'd probably see like a divergence between like a state like, you know, California might just say everyone has to do these robust plans. Like we're not allowing that. And a state like Kentucky might say free for all. Like, yeah. you know, you want to do the pizza insurance plan? Like Godspeed. It's state-based regular. I think that's actually an important point. I think that to, to, to be generous to this, when Ted Cruz and Mike Lee and them explain it, it's power to the states, you know, states. Why would states want to allow their people to buy shitty insurance? Um there are reasons states might want to let their people buy shitty insurance, but but putting that aside, I, I have a couple thoughts on this. So one is when, when you talk to the staffers behind these plans, one of the things they've, I've heard from them is, well, look, this isn't that crazy. This is a high-risk pool, that what you're basically doing is creating a high-risk pool called the Obamacare-compliant plan. And yeah, it's going to get expensive, and so maybe you need to subsidize that plan to keep it from going into a death spiral. But then having walled off that sort of toxic risk sludge, then the rest of the market can operate according to real free market principles. And and I mean, if you listen, I was on Face Nation with Mike Lee, like he just kept saying it will unleash the power of the free market. This is, I think, a really profound misunderstanding of both like what the Affordable Character is trying to do and, and how health insurance works. There is not some thing called the free market. These markets are constructed, right? They're constructed in different industries in different ways, um, but they whether they are constructed well or poorly ends up deciding a lot of what they do. When we have badly constructed individual insurance markets, because being healthy and sick is not a binary, it's not like you go to the doctor and he flips a switch and now you're a sick person and you should go into the high risk pool. People have past conditions that they're not really sick from anymore, but they raise their future risk of sickness. They have um, a sore foot, right? And that that foot is costing them a lot of money, but they're not super sick and maybe they could live with it being sore. And so what you end up doing is you incentivize the market to compete on risk selection. And so rather than competing on offering good plans or on building better networks. I mean, some of that might happen as well. You end up having insurers compete on getting really, really, really good at figuring out who not to insure. 
And those people are not all sick. Those people might become sick. Those people might become young women who are going to become pregnant in the future, but they're not the people you mean to put on the Obamacare compliant plan. Like those are just, those are healthy people who are going to have families. And this is really a proposal that would bring back the bad old days. One of the things Obamacare was built to do, and people I think don't talk about it that much, but was to create competition across measures that were not risk selection. To my knowledge, for all the problems in some of the individual markets, it has mostly done that. The plan standardized. They're competing on creating tight networks. They're competing on how do you design. They're, you know, there was one plan. I'm not sure how it's doing now. I don't think that great. But Oscar that was competing on a sort of better user interface on the front end. But they are not primarily competing on risk selection. Uh, this would bring back a world where they really are competing to decide which kind of person they are. Uh, ensuring, which they would do by designing plans that are not attractive to certain kinds of people, which they would do by, in some cases, simply not covering certain kinds of conditions. Uh, and that's not what we want. I mean, maybe it is, right? But that's the debate we need to be having here. Like, what do we think a health insurance market should do? What should be the kind of competition that it encourages? Because this would be a move away from a kind of competition we've moved towards that I actually thought most people agreed was a better form of competition. And I think, you know, the outcome of this, no matter what plan someone signs up for, is people with higher medical bills paying a larger share of those medical bills out of cost. So I think, you know, like you were saying, Ezra, this isn't just about the Obamacare compliant plan getting flooded with like cancer patients or people with like super serious conditions. It's about people with foot injuries or diabetes, I actually think is like a really good example to think of like how this plays out with someone with diabetes, where the drugs, insulin prices have gone up hugely in recent years. We have a Weeds of the Wild episode you can find in our archives. And in any case, that person just ends up spending a lot more. They go into the Obamacare compliant plan and they have much, much higher premiums, or they go into one of the skimpier plans and they're paying, you know, way more out of pocket for their insulin. Like this is a world where if you are someone with significant healthcare needs, you are just going to be paying a lot more out of pocket. And that's going to advantage healthy people because they're not going to help subsidize your bills as much. So if you're like 23 and you're, you know, don't have a lot of healthcare needs, you're probably paying a lot less. But then if you're 23 and you got diagnosed with um with diabetes, all of a sudden it really shifts. I think it's um you know, like Ezra pointed out earlier, there, there's not a binary between sick and not sick. And everyone who is a healthy person is at risk of becoming a, a sick person at some unexpected point. Um, so it, it really is a huge, really significant burden on, on people with, with not even that complex medical needs. I'm feeling a little dumbfounded by this idea. <laughs> what If you looked at the Senate's plan as written, people had different kinds of problems with it, right? Like you could make it spend less money if you're conservative, or you could make it cover more people, or you could make it work better for rural areas or something like what, what of the dimensions of concern people had with the original Senate bill is this been to address? Do they think this will be cheaper? It will cover more people. Like what is Ted Cruz trying to do? Here? So I think this like, um, appeases some of like the Mike Lees and Rand Pauls of the world who want to see the insurance market further deregulated and are not that concerned about people losing health insurance who seem to be okay with the idea that premiums might rise for for sicker people because you're really opening up the market, allowing more competition. So I think it's it's meant to appease that um wing of the Republican Party. 
But what surprised me, I was just trying to look it up on my phone and um, maybe Ezra will talk for a little bit and I'll find this. But we've seen some people being swayed by this who I didn't expect to be swayed by this. Um, I need to look up who they were exactly. Well, it was Jeff I don't Flake get, I think was it was the Jeff weird Flake. one. Yeah, which was kind of like odd and surprising to me. And it almost felt very similar to the MacArthur amendments in the House, which made the bill, you know, worse for sick people. And all of a sudden you had a handful of moderates saying like, oh, this is like going to get me on, I th- on board. I think this... I mean, I don't know because we've not seen a Congressional Budget Office score, but I think this is going to score quite badly. I mean, and that is what everybody tells me, too. Uh, now, look, we could all be surprised that CBO is sometimes uh, an unexpected agency, but this is going to come out and they are going to say you are going to see a return of basically pre-existing condition discrimination in mo- in all states that use it. Because that, that's what this is, right? You're getting rid of these insurance regulations. Uh, very, very quickly. One thing I, I don't understand about the argument for a bill like this, nobody seems to think the individual markets used to be good. When you listen to Mike Lee or when you listen to Ted Cruz make the case for this, they talk about the need to unleash free market forces. I mean, their critique is that Obamacare is so heavily regulated uh, private insurance markets and the insurance design that the market is not able to give people what they want. It is to cover too many things. It's driven up premiums. It's stifled innovation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, why wasn't the thing we had before better then? Um, the individual markets did not have, I mean, they had state-based regulation back then. Uh, they had fewer regulations and everybody agreed, including conservative and, and, and Republican healthcare wonks, that they were a disaster. This feels to me, to your point about what is it achieving? While it sometimes gets explained as trying to achieve a policy goal like lower premiums, I think it's really achieving a philosophical goal. I think this is a way to roll back um, federal regulation of insurance markets. And irrespective of what that achieves in health insurance markets, I don't think that if you could sit down with Ted Cruz or Mike Lee and show them that there's a way of doing federal insurance with some amount of state control that would get you better outcomes on some set of measures that they would abandon this amendment. I think that this is a philosophical fight about the size of government. And this, to me, is really at the core of why the Senate bill is so incoherent and so um, unclear in what it's trying to do. It is trying to compromise between some people who have health policy goals, some people who have philosophical and ideological goals, some people who really don't know what their goals are at all, some people who have political goals and just want to vote for something or they just don't want to vote for something or they just don't know if they want to vote for something <laughs> or not. And trying to compromise between these things is just creating a lot of incoherence. It's not like when Democrats all thought – What we should do is give more poor people who are uninsured insurance, and then people had a lot of debates about means. There are really different end goals here, and so the means are internally incoherent. And that's why this – this is an internally incoherent mean if what you're trying to do is, say, cover sick people or make insurance markets better. But it makes a lot of sense if your goal is just to roll back federal regulations of insurance markets in a way that maybe you can get some people to sign on to by trying to trick them about what Obamacare is and whether or not you're keeping it in place. Mm-hmm. And then before, I think we're almost ready to move on to minimum wage and give it its full space. But one thing I want to pick up on, Ezra, you said that this has been framed as high-risk pools, You know, basically turning the Obamacare plan into a high-risk pool. And I, I think that actually – is right and what it would become, but it'd be a very, very expensive high-risk pool to enroll in because these people would be getting the tax credits under the Senate plan, which are less generous than those under the Affordable Care Act, which already were leaving people pretty stressed with their deductibles and co-payments. So you could have someone who earns like $10,000. Let's say they have diabetes, again, like a common chronic condition. You know, they would be buying a plan with a $6,000 deductible. Like that's what their tax credits would get them. And I think they'd have to spend like 
2% of their income or so to get it, which, you know, isn't a ton of money, but it's like, why spend that for a plan with a deductible that is more than half your income? So it would become a high-risk pool with, with people with expensive conditions, but it'd be one that would have very, very high costs to sign up in it. You know, summer is the, is the perfect time to learn something new, get inspired by a new hobby. Uh, I've been doing that with the Great Courses Plus, and you should too. You can spend hours watching these fascinating video lectures, learning from award-winning experts about topics that are interesting to you, politics, world economics, psychology. Uh, you can watch the Great Courses Plus wherever you want, from your smartphone, your tablet, your, your laptop, uh, or even on your television. It, you can download the lectures to watch offline if you've got, you know, a plane flight or, or something like that coming up, uh, you, you need entertainments. Um, you know, in addition to the more academic type stuff. They've got things that are just sort of like skill and hobby focused. Uh, the Fundamentals of Photography is a great way to learn tips and techniques from a real National Geographic photographer. And, and you know, I mean, we're all take photos more thanks to digital photography than we used to. Uh, but a lot of us, frankly, don't know what we're doing. Uh, learning from a professional about how to think about lighting, how to frame photos, just sort of like the basics of how to do it well with any camera will make your photos better and will make you interested in maybe upgrading your equipment, uh, other kinds of things like that. It's really useful, you know, to hear from a professional how you think about framing a scene to me. Instead of just pulling out your camera and snapping, uh, think about like, what am I really looking at. Uh, so I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus, too. As one of our listeners, you'll get unlimited access to all of their courses free for one month when you sign up through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Start your free month today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Now the moment now the you moment two we've have been, been waiting, waiting for. for so patiently. <laughs> So excitedly. All right, Matt, people, you ready? The people want to know. Okay, um, the minimum wage is a thing. Um, people enjoy studies about the minimum wage that they then evaluate in total good faith, uh, really just curious about, about the answer. Um, so when this new one came out uh, by uh, – it was – Ekaterina Jardim, I'm sure I'm butchering that name, Mark C. Long, whose name I feel really confident about, <laughs> Robert Plotnick, Emma Van Inwigen, Jacob Vigdor, and Hilary Wething as uh, a team based out of the, the University of Washington. They did a study of the sort of big uh, recent increase in the minimum wage in the city of Seattle. I think it's worth pointing out that they were sort of commissioned to do this study because I think it, important political context here is that this was supposed to be like the official source of evidence uh, now that the news has come back that their study uh, w is not so positive the politicians who were behind the minimum wage increase are not like aha now i've changed my mind you know we're well, they no commissioned the news study from yes, berkeley they, right they commissioned it's a new and better study that shows their policy to get more work. data and have more consideration yeah um, so i mean i'm joking but but really i mean it, it, there, there's a lot of interesting research on the minimum wage and also an incredible amount of like bad faith floating around. Anyway, so their study, uh, it innovated on previous studies by using detailed wage and hour information that comes from the state of Washington's uh, unemployment insurance fund, right? So it's a much more detailed, much more fine grained look 
and what happens. Um, Wait, just to set the context, can you talk a little bit about how this was studied before? Like how you generally study sure, I, minimum so, wage? So usually this has been studied with survey data. Um, and could, sorry, can we just say, what are we studying at all? We okay. keep saying the minimum wage, but <laughs> we're not just a, we're um, so, studying so, job so, losses so, right, or, right. or so, black right. Thereof, so the right? headline here is like, what, what happens when the minimum wage increases from uh, 9 45 an hour to, to $13 an hour in, in 2016? And they found, this is, I think, important to understand. They confirmed different earlier studies of the minimum wage, which showed no loss of low wage jobs, right? So it doesn't disagree with that research. Uh, they also confirmed that specifically in the restaurant industry, uh, nothing bad seems to have happened. People just got raises because people often say this study contradicts earlier, more pro minimum wage studies, but it actually doesn't. What it found is that Outside the restaurant industry, there was not a loss of low-wage jobs, but they say there was a large reduction in low-wage hours and that as a result, there was a net decline in income that you know people's hourly pay went up, but their number of hours went down and so they ended up – they say they ended up worse off than they were before. I guess you, you could argue that interpretation – um, Can I add one thing here yeah. real quick? The reason the restaurant industry piece of this is important is a foundational study in sort of modern minimum wage economics is this Card Kruger study about the restaurant industry, I think in New Jersey, if yeah, I remember. I think New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania border. Yeah. The, right. And the reason that's important is that they were using the restaurant industry as because they did not have the data on literally who gets minimum wage. They were using restaurant industry employment and, and fast food employment, mm-hmm. basically, to simulate um, low-wage workers, right? They're using it as kind of a stand-in, a way to get at a lot of workers of that kind, although not all workers in that study were actually minimum wage. So what's interesting about this study is they really had a better beat on who they were studying, and they found that maybe the restaurant industry actually just has unusual dynamics. Um, but that that's why that's important, because this really changed who got studied, and, and, and that was using a – people were sort of making an analogy from the restaurant industry to broader dynamics, and this facing, maybe you can't do that. Yeah, like that that's their take basically is that these earlier studies that you may have heard about that show that minimum wage increases don't cause job losses are not mistaken, but they are overinterpreting a limited universe of data, and then what they find is that most low-wage workers – aren't in the restaurant industry. In those other industries, you see a loss not of jobs, but of hours. Um, and so people need to – ought to rethink. So um, can you just walk me through – like let's say someone who's in Seattle, they're earning like $10 an hour outside the restaurant industry. Like what does the paper posit about what happens to a person like that? Well, this I think is a little confusing. I mean here's where you get into criticisms of the study uh, because you need a research design with these kinds of things, right? And so, like, one obvious thing to do would be to just kind of, like, kick around the city of Seattle and be like, is there an economic calamity here? Uh, But there isn't, right? Like, actually, Seattle's Mm -hmm. economy is booming, right? And you can have opposite studies to this, right? So some people have said, oh, states that that raised the minimum wage in 2008, um, which there were a number of, suffered enormous job losses. And the counterpoint to that is, like, there were enormous job losses everywhere in 2008, right? There was there was a huge recession about it. So, so right, if you look broadly, like the Seattle economy is doing fine, uh, 
But this study is trying to use a sophisticated statistical technique that's called a synthetic control model. That means basically you look at data from other cities, right? And you create a statistical composite of like Seattle-esque economy that wasn't subject to the minimum wage hike, and you do the comparison uh, between Seattle and synthetic Seattle. And so they are basically saying that hours decline in actual Seattle relative to synthetic Seattle, um, which in this case, because Seattle is having a boom, is more like low-wage workers are left out of the party than like low-wage workers are devastated. By, by the change. A lot of the research questions then, methodological questions then come about the construction of this synthetic Seattle. Because to get the detailed wage and hour data from the state of Washington unemployment office, synthetic Seattle has to be composed of Washington state towns that are not Seattle. And I'm not like, you're from the area, but my basic conception of Washington State is that like you have Seattle, you have some Seattle suburbs, and then there's a big countryside. And so it's like, you wouldn't normally, people compare, if you just in life, you compare Seattle to like Portland, or Mm -hmm. you compare Seattle to Nashville, you don't compare Seattle to Spokane, because that's like really like a small town. Um, And... Another way to think about it, right, this Economic Policy Institute had this, like, counterpaper saying that, no, the minimum wage in Seattle is going great. They used the, I would say, more intuitive method of, like, comparing Seattle to a synthetic Seattle composed of other well-educated, expensive, large coastal cities. Uh, but the problem is, is that you then can't do the fine-grained wage and hours data. You're back to a survey-based research method. So th- there's one other piece of this that I think is very strange, and I've and in in my understanding is where a lot of the critical debate happens here, which is that what you see in the data they created a cutoff around nineteen dollars an hour, and they saw a jump among hours worked at those higher wages, and it's very unclear why there would be that jump. So one thing that's happening here, and what one criticism made of, of this paper in the FT, which I thought was reasonable was that okay if you are blaming the minimum wage increase for the fall in low wage hourly work are you also saying well actually that created an increase in in higher wage hourly work which would be plausible actually right that you you can imagine a mechanism for that which is you make quite low wage workers a bit more expensive and so rather than employers taking a flyer on like some kid uh, because that kid is not that cheap now. And so putting up with their mistakes and the fact that they're going to go back to school and so forth, it, it's, you know, it was fine because they were, they didn't cost anything. Now it's actually, they've changed the calculus. It's a, it's worth it to try to hire somebody who's a little bit better, who you're going to invest more in. And then there's this question of, okay, are we moving people from minimum wage to that? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of questions there, but you could imagine an argument that the minimum wage is increasing, uh, is pushing employers to hire slightly more uh, experienced employees, which would be one interpretation of this paper. Another interpretation is we just don't know what's going on there. Uh, but there's something weird happening there, which seems very important for how you interpret the paper. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think um, 
kind of how man kicked us off that the hard thing is this has been quickly especially so we also have at the same time the release of this berkeley paper which is as i understand it the one that was when when they were started seeing data from uw in seattle they kind of said oh actually we'd like to investigate this a little bit differently and quickly the two were released right around the same time like leading to not like actually a robust discussion of like what is happening in the minimum wage, but more of like one paper says it's bad and one paper says it's good. I I think another challenge that happens in this paper, and I actually don't, maybe Matt knows this a little bit better. I don't know the research well enough to uh, evaluate this, but you also have a large swath of the industry left out where one of the things they had to do is keep out businesses that had locations in Seattle and other nearby cities. So if you had, um, I grew up in the Seattle suburbs, so if you had, you know, like a chain restaurant that even had like one location, you know, out where I live, then you were excluded from the study. And they say that's about 40% of businesses. So that's a large chunk that's missing. The other thing that I think is going on in this paper that's really hard to measure is the rise of more informal employment that gets filed via 1099 instead of a W-2, which is a boring tax difference. But it means that we can't really capture, you know, the rise of Uber or Lyft or other sort of like gig economy jobs that are likely becoming more prevalent in this exact time frame and probably quite relevant to this debate because you could also tell a story about, you know, someone shifting, you know, maybe losing their low wage job, but moving towards more of a gig based economy um, profession and that being better or worse for them. It, you know, looking at all this research, it feels like very hard. I think a lot of people want to tell like a very definitive story about like what is happening in Seattle. Um, It's less less satisfying to like come up with like a shruggy and it's complicated, but it seems like a very complicated story. And the UW study, which I think does use data in a really innovative way, I think they're pretty upfront about a lot of the data is missing. A lot of the data they don't have and aren't able to study. This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by 23andMe.com. Uh, 23andMe.com is a, a genetic testing service. It provides you with DNA reports about where your DNA comes from, from, from around the world. Uh, I've used it myself. Uh, it lets you explore what percentage of your DNA comes from places like Italy, Finland, East Asia, or Africa. In my case, none of it from Finland. A little disappointing. Some from Italy. That was intriguing. Uh, not what I knew, not what I thought. And now through August 3rd, you could win a genetic adventure as 23andMe.com will choose one person each day for 23 days to try travel to locations based on their DNA. Uh, will you be one of the 23 people to win a trip and travel to locations based on your DNA? Order your DNA kit for a chance to win, a trip to explore your connection to the world and travel like never before. Uh, to enter, visit 23andMe.com. That's the number 23andme.com. Uh, so no purchase is necessary. It's open to legal U.S. residents 18 or older. Ends August 3rd. You must complete the 23andMe service. Visit 23andMe.com slash rules for free entry. The multi-site employer issue is interesting to me just because it, it gets it – to me what's a little troubling about the minimum wage debate is that it's often not clear to me a little bit like what Ezra was saying about Ted Cruz, but that like I, I don't always know what it is minimum wage – increase advocates are trying to do. I think one thing that really appeals to some people about increasing the minimum wage is that a simple economic model of labor markets says increasing the minimum wage is a bad idea, but increasing the minimum wage is popular. So the minimum wage is like a 
wedge issue, like against the hegemony of neoclassical economics, right? And so people sort of like, it's like the the the, the bad theory around the minimum wage is part of its appeal to people who want to be able to say that like we don't need to have any value on market mechanisms. I sort of think you're overthinking anywhere. this. <laughs> no, I, I, I really think I I'm did not. like that phrase, the hegemony of. <laughs> I, I, I actually really think I'm not. I mean, I, I think it's an important reason why like people don't want to accept the sort of like wonk technique. But who do we mean by people here? I guess. Like, like, because I feel like people I know just like people support the wage because they think it'll mean people get paid. No, I'm money. saying like like political entrepreneurs. Oh, okay. All right. okay, gotcha. You know what I mean? That it's like the, the 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 sort of perversity of it. The fact that like you know like neoliberal shill Matty Glacius has some <laughs> doubts about this is part of what's so like gung ho appealing about it. And to go back to the multi site employers, right? So the UW study, it has to leave out these multi site employers. That seems like a large omission. They say it's a large omission. They claim it doesn't like undermine their work and they give some, some survey based reasons for that. So then people, uh, critics like jump on them. They're like, this is outrageous. You're leaving out 40% of jobs. And so a question that I have is that if what research on the minimum wage said, was that minimum wage increases crush small businesses while shifting workers into large multi-site employers who can handle it, would that be good, right? Now, maybe it is. I I don't think that that's crazy, right? But it's like a frustration, particularly with these municipal policies, is like, what is it you are trying to do? Because particularly with a very local minimum wage, right? If you said that, I live on, on 14th Street in, in, in DC, uh, between uh, S and T. If you said 14th Street between S and T in Washington, DC is now going to have a $50 an hour minimum wage. I think clearly what would happen is that the existing businesses there would wind up shutting down, but also that they would be replaced by different businesses that employed different people, high wage workers, but that like the Washington DC economy is robust enough to adapt to that kind of like weird quirky ruling. And so you could look at it, you could say, we massively increased pay on this block. Or you could look at it and say, we destroyed all the businesses. And there's like a lot of different interpretations you give it. And the question you would ask about that policy isn't like, is it good or is it bad? But it's like, what were you trying to do? And so like in Seattle, particularly Seattle, is only one part of King County, which is only one part of the Seattle metro area. Like, if this policy, if what is happening is that the policy is reshaping the Seattle economy so that low-wage work is reallocating into the suburbs and that workers and that real estate is being reallocated away from small firms and toward bigger firms – and that the most marginal employment candidates are going into 1099 work – um, but in, like, is that good? Like, I, you could make a case for it, right? That like, Seattle is constrained on a lot of margins, right? Like, it's an expensive city. Uh, there's some upzoning downtown, but single family home residents are, are very protective. There's questions about the transportation infrastructure. So you like look at the city as a whole, and you say like, well, what are we trying to do? So let me um, let me offer a bunch of thoughts on that because I think this gets to some really important issues. And let me start by giving my argument for some kinds of minimum wage increases, sort of the model I use when I think about it. And that I think a lot of minimum wage advocates use, although I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush. 
But the way I think about the minimum wage is that low-wage workers, particularly replaceable low-wage workers, have very little bargaining power. And so they're not able to extract as much of the value that they're creating as higher-wage workers who are in a more competitive talent economy. If you're easily replaced and there isn't there is a skill difference between people at low wage work too. I don't want to in any way diminish that. But um, but if there are more people who can do your job and your job is pretty rote, um, if you're you know just like operating the fryer at McDonald's, not to say that isn't a difficult job, but more people can do it, then it's harder for you to go in and say, hey, you got to give me a raise or I'm walking because they might say, well, okay, walk. And so in that case, what the minimum wage is, is the government, state government, federal government is acting as your negotiator. It's all, I don't, unions have other roles too, but it's almost acting as your union. It's just saying, nope, we are increasing your bargaining power artificially. We are saying you have to be paid this much. And so the place where minimum wage increase is very valuable is where you think that there's a delta in between the value low-wage workers are creating and how much their employers could be paying. Right. So you think that the employers have basically won the negotiation, are pocketing more of the gains, giving them to shareholders, taking them out as profits, taking them out as, you know, compensation for executives, possibly reinvesting them in the business. Right. They do other things, too. But you you think that it would be good to shift some of that towards workers. And so now you have a, a minimum wage increase and you shift some of that towards workers. Maybe it comes out in prices. Maybe they just swallow it and it comes out in, you know, whatever, lower profits. But but that's what you do. I think something that follows from that theory, I think something that is likely within it, is that bigger, more successful businesses probably are both stronger negotiators and have more of a delta um, with their low-wage employees. So I think it is likelier that Walmart, um, they've been increasing pay in recent years a bit, but, but using them as a stylized example here, Walmart has space to pay its workers more in a way that your my corner store does not. Or may not, right? I don't know for sure. Um, and so if you begin to increase the minimum wage, you might actually really get Walmart workers raise, but you might also really hurt the corner store. Um, and if you do that a bunch of different times, what you're doing is systematically advantaging larger employers. This cuts against a different thing that progressives feel, which is a generalized preference I find for small businesses over big. But when you look at how workers are treated, big businesses tend to have more benefits, particularly lower on the pay scale. Big businesses often pay a little bit more. There's a, a little bit of a conflict between people's intuitions and, and what you see in, in labor market data here. So one reason I think this excising of the 40% of multi-site employers is important or employees at multi-site employers is important is that it would actually be a totally plausible effect of the minimum wage in Seattle that it creates a shift in employment towards larger employers, that it makes smaller employers a bit less competitive, larger employers a bit more competitive. That might on net even be good for the employees, but it obviously violates some people's intuitions about what kinds of businesses you want to be incentivizing to to be created in Seattle. Then there's this other thing that I just want to note, because it's important. One of the authors of this study had a very good line, uh, and I forgot where I read it now, but he said, there is no one minimum wage effect. There's a different minimum wage effect in different cities at different times. A minimum wage of $15, which is where this is intended to go in Seattle, might not work at all for rural Kansas. Um, one reason I am skeptical of the $15 national minimum wage is not because I don't want to see workers paid more. I would like to see them paid quite a bit more, but that in areas where that's going above the like half of the median wage or something or even going above the median wage – 
you're starting to get into places where I think you could see a lot of job loss and maybe you want to be working through the earned income tax credit or just through a raw tax rebate to workers so you don't have the job loss problem. But this Seattle paper is going to tell us, hopefully, things about Seattle. And I think as you hear from this conversation, even that is difficult. It is not going to tell us that much about Poughkeepsie or Los Angeles or the suburbs of um, Chino. <laughs> I think it's really hard. Yeah. And I think one of the unique things about Seattle is someone who grew up there and spent a lot of time there is that – and this kind of gets at you know synthetic Seattle and these multi-site employers – it's Seattle has like a hugely burgeoning city called Bellevue that's, um, you know, like a 15 minute drive from there that, you know, my family moved to Seattle area when we were 11. And since then, it's had all these skyscrapers go up. Microsoft's buying like a ton of property. When you, you know, drive into Seattle, it's a skyline you see first. And I've had like people visiting me say like, oh, is that Seattle? And say, no, that's Bellevue. And then Seattle still is a bigger skyline. But it is this kind of growing city that, you know, isn't quite on par. It's far from being on par with Seattle, but it actually feels like it's getting closer to being synthetic Seattle. And it's not that far. It's maybe like a 15 or so minute drive from the downtown of one to the other. So one effect that would not, you know, surprise me is seeing some of that shift into the Bellevue area from Seattle, which I my hunch is that it also has some lower housing prices in Bellevue because it's outside of the city center, that it, it would not be a giant change to move one's job from, you know, the the Walmart in downtown Seattle to the Walmart in in Bellevue. So I think some of that is going on in this area that has like a very robust suburban population. I think it gets at like the what happens when you do very municipal policy in an area that has a lot of kind of a lot of population. Like it's really different, like you're saying, Matt, from doing this at the King County level where everywhere you drive two or three hours from Seattle would have the same policy. You couldn't really get around it. Whereas here you can literally like drive across a bridge 10 minutes and you are out of this particular policy requirement. And I think that makes it very, very specific to this one area. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I I mean, there's like a few different perspectives you can have on this debate. And like one is if you're, you know, a city leader and, you know, you do you want to be like a fight for 15 mayor and like maybe you do, but you, you should really think about like what's your like holistic, like economic development theory of the city. Um, you know, and you know, do you, do you want chain stores? Do you want little mom and pops? Like how do, how do you, how do you want to structure this nationally? I mean, if you genuinely think there is intriguing empirical evidence that a very high minimum wage will be a boon to people, but you recognize that there's some doubt about it, you ought to put forward a program that has some kind of a randomization element. I mean, nobody seems to do this, but like I look at a state like West Virginia, where the median wage right now is a little bit below 15. And I really think like $15 an hour minimum wage, like that would have a real crazy impact. Um, But maybe you want to do some kind of randomization with low income states and try and see like, maybe I'm wrong. I've always thought, though, in terms of like, broad vision of like what is an alternative to the neoliberal dystopia in which low-wage workers have no bargaining power and get paid rock-bottom wages by powerful employers is what they do traditionally in the Nordic countries and used to do in Germany, which is to have very strong 
labor unions so that you can have a meaningful discussion between the workforce and the management about workers' desire to be paid more, and managers can try to present evidence that like, well, look, if we paid you this much, we'd have to shut down these three sites, and you can have some back and forth, and you can have different wages in different sectors. I mean, I understand like politics are politics, and like you can put a minimum wage ballot increase on at the state level and win even in red states. Whereas if you were to say uh, we should dram- even even a small uh, labor law reform like uh, Democrats proposed in 2009, you know, got killed right away in, in the Senate. Um, but but in terms of like a vision of society, collective bargaining seems a lot better. My favorite recent minimum wage story is a story out of Maine, which was where not about research, but about human beings. Uh, but they did an increase in the minimum wage for tipped workers, for basically waiters at restaurants. And in this case, it turned out that waiters at restaurants, as the law began to be phased in, uh, didn't like it that they reported that they were seeing their hours get cut back, that they were seeing customers were tipping less because they were like seeing these new service charges on on the bills. And that basically their desire to like get hours when they wanted it and to get tips from customers was not being met by this new framework. And the state legislature reversed course well, in the servers union, they campaigned against the raise increase, which right. I think was surprising to some people. And and to me, I mean, I guess we're supposed to be into research on the weeds. But like, that is what I would be looking for from Seattle is like some evidence that low income families in the Seattle area are like really mad about this policy change. I mean, I understand that's not like economics researchers role for it. But like, as long as people seem to be saying that they are happy with the change, I mean, that's that's an important kind of evidence about this sort of thing. I mean, there's, as I said, like, there's other concerns about, like, what are you trying to do with, with the regional economy? But that main story was, like, that is what I would expect a, like, serious minimum wage backfire to look like, is that, like, the people themselves are phoning up newspaper reporters and state legislators and being like, uh, this isn't working out, guys. Like, people, you know, know when they don't like outcomes. So one thing that is related to this, but not exactly on point that I just want to mention, minimum wage is minimum wage policies are often placed in opposition to earned income tax credit policies, expansions. And I think this is part of I think this discussion helps explain, I think, why that's a bad uh, binary I take those policies as going very well together. So a, a place like Seattle, um, we can look at Seattle. Now, let's take away synthetic Seattle for a minute. What we know happened in Seattle during this period is employment went up. There was an 18% increase in overall wages. We're not seeing some kind of on-the-ground massive backlash to the minimum wage. I think that a city and cities and, and actually non-cities, right, suburbs, rural areas that are growing fast, that's very much where you want to be looking at a minimum wage increase. Um, that That's probably going to work. Now, you can put it too high, right? And I think we always have to find the question of where is the correct margin. But, you know, in a boom time, I think that it is a case that employers have too much power vis-a-vis particularly low-wage employees. And you want to you try to do something about that. Simultaneously, you don't want to give up the fact that 
One, there are wage subsidies that would be helpful even if that level of wage subsidy put into a minimum wage would have bad employment effects. And two, you definitely don't want to not help people in the areas that need help the most, right? There are areas where you really do have a very weak economy, where wages are low, where unemployment is high. I think you would expect the minimum wage to not be a big minimum wage increase to not be a great thing in those areas potentially. Um, but that's where direct wage subsidies can really help. So I, I, I agree with Matt. I mean, you ideally would want much, much more power for the workers, which would probably come through collective bargaining. So a lot more of these decisions can be made uh, on a more proper level, which is the unit of the employer and the workplace, not the unit of the city, the state, or the country. But you're going to have some of these decisions made on those larger units, and you want to be thoughtful about them. And then there are going to be places where you want to achieve the goal of higher wages for lower-wage workers. And a minimum wage increase, even a modest one, is not a great idea. And so you want to use other kinds of wage subsidies to get there, which all goes to the point of it's good to know what your goal is. And if your goal is to help low-wage workers, we have a lot of tools to do that. And if we're just focused on doing that over an extended period of time, I think we could. Yes. All right. Fix it. <laughs> we could. Uh, but until then, while you are uh, suffering through through life and disempowerment, um, you might enjoy listening to our podcast, but also recommending our podcast to your friends, uh, your family, uh, to complete strangers so that this kind of wisdom can disseminate, uh, make things better. And, and look, it's possible you've listened to all the weeds you can possibly listen to, given it to everybody you can give it to. So then you might want to try some other Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts, particularly Worldly, which is the Weeds is foreign policy cousin, and I think you're interesting, by Todd Vanderwerf, where he talks to fascinating people in culture. I might even recommend The Ezra Klein Show, where I talk to fascinating people in politics and policy and other places. Uh, but, you know, listen to The Weeds first. Thank you to our producer, Bert <laughs> Pinkerton. Uh, the Weeds is also a Vox Media Podcast Network podcast, and we'll be back in a couple of days. 